Good morning, everybody. Apologize for the delay. It takes me time to put a face mask on <laughs> to get up here. Now I've got to find a place to store it. <clears throat> what I'd like to do this morning is share with you a journey that God took me on back about the first of the year, about uh, the time all of our disruption started occurring. And uh, I, I want to share with you some things about change in our lives and change in our culture and society. And I'd also like to share with you a Bible story that I think you're all going to be familiar with. Uh, the overhead you see up there now is basically a description of what we are in terms of our responses in life. Uh, at the center of us, we have some core values. The stronger those values are, the more predictable our behavior and our actions are going to be. Uh, those values will drive our actions in response to any changes that come into our life. And we've had some changes recently, haven't we? A couple questions for you. Let me get some glasses on so I can at least see my notes. Not that I'll be able to understand them but or that I'll follow them. Uh, <clears throat> question for you. How's everyone doing with the changes that are going on in your life right now? Seriously. Good? Okay. Anybody feel like they're all alone in this? Anybody? Yeah, there's times. And I'm going to help you understand what God helped me understand about feeling alone when a lot of stuff is coming at you. Anybody feel like maybe we've been wandering in the desert for a while? <laughs> Thirsty and hungry? There's some reasons for that. I told you back at the beginning of the year, about the time this started, actually God had was preparing me several months before because he started me in November, really trying to examine what was going on in my life, uh, where I was, what I needed to do. So I got a head start on this by a couple, three months. Um, he led me down some path. He made me go back and renew some understandings I had about change um, several years ago. In fact, 30 or 40, uh, I was required to lead the organization I worked for through some massive changes. To do that, uh, I went and spent a lot of time with real experts on change and grieving and uh, all the things that can impact uh, large groups of people when they're hit by severe change. Uh, it's interesting because even though a large group of people are hit by change, like we're going through right now, I react as an individual to it. My responses are very unique, unique to me, and I know that's true about all of you also, because all of us are a little bit different, so we're not all going to be reacting exactly the same. You wonder why some people pull guns and threaten people? It's because they're significantly different and change has impacted them differently. Now, when you look at that and say our values drive our actions, well, if we've got good, strong values, that should be all we need. Unfortunately, there are some things that screw up our values sometimes. They're called emotions. <laughs> when we get angry, 
our values go right down the tube. When we fear, our values go down the tube. When we love, sometimes our values go down the tube. Unfortunately, as strong as our values are, if we don't work at strengthening them every single day, we stand the chance of one event triggering our anger, triggering another emotion, and we're not going to react the way we thought we should have reacted. Some of the things the experts taught me about change was that it can actually be measured in individuals. They, they, they develop what they call assimilation points, and it's a, they assign a number of points to a significant change in a person's life. It might be the death of a loved one. It might be the purchase of a house. It might be the loss of a job. It might be divorce. It might be marriage. And what they claimed is, is as you approach a certain level of assimilation points, you become dysfunctional. Now, all dysfunctional means is that you no longer make your decisions based on those strong core values. You make them based on something else, the fear, the anger, whatever. So that's why we sometimes don't react well, particularly when we're under the stresses of a lot of change. Now, we've had a lot of change. So God kind of pointed me, he says, what I want you to do is take a look at, try and put in perspective what this change is. And he drove me down a pretty, pretty, pretty clear road. So first of all, he wanted me to, how does the, how does the changes that are hitting you now compare to the most tragic changes that occurred in your life? You know, so I looked at the loss of my wife, the loss of my parents, the loss of my grandparents, the loss of aunts and uncles. Uh, all of, all of my parents' generation is gone except for one aunt who's only six years older than I am. And I compared that to what's going on now, and you know where the comparison wound up? What's going on right now is pretty minor compared to those tragic events in my life. And I think that helped me put one perspective on what's going on right now. Is it really, really, really bad? Well, it's not pleasant, but it's not, it's not like the loss of a loved one. It's on a different level. It's just hitting a lot more people. And they're seeing some of those people react dysfunctionally. And that makes me angry and sad. Another perspective he wanted me to take a look at was compared to all of my forebears and my prodigy, where does this lie? So I looked at what my grandparents experienced. They went through World War I, the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed a ton more people than what's going on right now, and they survived. I looked at what my parents encountered in life. They went through the Depression. They went through World War II. They went through the Korean War and then the rebuilding after all those wars. I looked at what I encountered in my lifetime. I went through the Vietnam War. I went through the radical social changes of the 1960s. I looked at what my children encountered in their life. They went through the technological revolution. I mean, it really started exploding in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the flow of information sped up so much that it just kind of couldn't keep up with it. 
tremendous cultural and social changes impacting in those years. Then I looked at what my grandchildren have gone through. 9-11, the war on terror, significant social, moral changes in our life. And I'm thinking, gee, every generation's had its box full of all this stuff coming at us. So that puts another perspective on it. Compared to what previous generations and post-generations have experienced, how does this stack up? Well, it's just one more thing. It's just one more thing. Now, in addition to all those external changes that were coming at all these generations and all of us today, we have internally driven changes. Now, the difference is external is things like war, the death of a loved one. Internal things are as I decide to get married. That's internally driven. But believe me, it gets into your change factors because any time you're experiencing change, whether it be external or internal, you're going to go through the grieving cycle. Now, the grieving cycle is, again, it's, it's a fact of life. Study support is there. Most experts say there's seven steps to it. That's too complicated for me. I like four steps. <laughs> They're easier to remember. And the four steps of the grieving cycle is, and when any change hits you, even if it's your initiated change, this is going to happen to you. To a lesser degree, if it's like a decision, say, to marry, because you're in love, but you're going to go through these four stages just the same on a much smaller scale. The four stages are, stage one is shock and denial. And I can remember back when I decided to get married in the 60s, and I thought, boy, I'm shocked. Because <laughs> it wasn't five years before, I swore I would never, ever marry in my lifetime. I was dedicating my life to military service. I was going to serve my country all my life. I didn't want to be the, 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 the burden of a family on me. Then I met the wrong person. <laughs> and that decision was taken out of my hands. The next stage is anger. And I got to admit, there was times when I married that I would get a little angry because it was different. I had to think about two people instead of one. And that bothered me because it was a lot easier when I was only thinking for one person, trying to keep one person happy. Then I had to keep two people happy. Then I'd get angry at times. The third stage was uh, a depression and rationalization. And yeah, there was, there's some depression. I mean, we, when this, this hit us in what, February, March, January, February, March, uh, I got, within five or six weeks, I was a little depressed. But I also knew what I was going through because God had driven me back to remember the things I learned many years before. So I knew that stage was going to pass too. And how was it going to pass? By moving on to the fourth stage, which is acceptance and rebuilding. I had to accept the changes that were coming at me. You've got to wear a face mask if you're going out in public. For right now, you can't even go out in public. Maybe in a month or two, we'll let you go out in public. Uh, I remembered what the experts had taught me, that the way you manage change in your life is to take control of your life. You have to stand up. Go to your core values and say, what decisions do I need to make to meet these changes that are coming at me? I can't change the changes. 
They're there. They're fixed. They're happening. So what am I going to do? And this is basically what I did for the organization that I worked for. We, we tried to get everybody into training programs that taught them to take control of their life. A lot of them, it was voluntary. A lot didn't want to do it. A lot did. A lot of people, when change come at them, just wanted to sit back and let the change wash over them. That's the worst thing in the world you can do. You've got to decide what you're going to do and move ahead. Carry your life forward. That's important. Now, that kind of put all this in perspective. So what let's do now is let's look at the Bible story that God took me to back in, I guess it was December. <laughs> and uh, I would read it to you. The only problem is that I would be reading you the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, and the book of Joshua. And I don't think we want to be here until 3 o'clock this afternoon. What we're looking at is the story of the exodus of the nation of Israel from the condition of slavery they were in in Egypt and the journey they took through the wilderness to take the God, the land that God had promised them, basically Israel. So, even though Moses went to lead the people out. The Pharaoh opposed what was going to happen. And God had to intervene significant number of times. I mean, he caused the plagues. He caused the livestock to die. He caused the firstborn of Egypt to die. He turned the, the river Nile red with blood. He did all those things. And, and it just, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wasn't going to let these slaves go, period. But he finally, with the death of his, uh, youngest son gave up. So Moses took the nation of Israel, which numbered in the, somewhere around a million people almost, took them into the Sinai Peninsula, which is not the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> Trust me. There is no green in the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula. It's desert. So he's got almost a million people out there in this desert. Now, God prompted me <laughs> to take a look at what was the mentality of all these one million people or plus that he took in the desert with him. They were slaves. They've been slaves for generations. What's going on in their head? What's their values all about? So I had to do some deducting and some reasoning and doing a little bit of research into to victim mentality because that's basically what they were. They were victims of slavery. They've been held in slavery multiple generations they weren't all Israelites. There were many foreigners who were held slave by Egypt, and they went with them. So this gives a whole other factor. When you look at that as a, as a group of people, it wasn't just Israelis. It was Israelis plus others. So what kind of mentality did they have? Well, their tradition was you worship one God. Their master's traditions were they worship multiple gods. There was two types of slaves. There was the hard manual labor slaves, which worked long hours with uh, forced labor, with whips. And then there was the artisan slaves, which were the carpenters, the stonemasons, the clerks, the butchers, the bakers, the surveyors. Uh, these were a little bit higher people. But, you know, they had overseers, too, and they had whips. <laughs> so in terms of treatment... 
from the slavery condition wasn't much different for either group. They were all pretty oppressed. Uh, the food was provided by the masters. The housing was provided by the masters. The masters did all the planning and all the thinking. The slaves had little control over their lives, either short or long term. They couldn't decide to take the day off and go golfing. It just wasn't in the job description. They weren't free to come and go as they saw fit. The bottom line was they were victims. They had a victim mentality. They lacked a strong value of absolute trust in God. Even though they claimed the one God as their God, he had left them in slavery for multiple generations. That trust level was somewhat eroded. And therein lied the problem. Because as soon as they got into the desert, they were thirsty. They were hungry. And they started rebelling and complaining. We need to go back to Egypt where the masters took care of us. It was so nice there. They fed us. They clothed us. They gave us housing. All we had to do was work for it. So God saw this rebellion. And what he decided he needed to do was... Give Moses a bunch of laws and rules, which included the Ten Commandments, to govern the people's daily life so that they knew what they had to do every day. So he did that. He also provided manna for them, a gift from heaven, food. He provided flocks of quail for them so they had meat in their diet. He brought water from solid stone by Moses striking it with a staff. So God provided for them all these things. Well, guess what? They still weren't happy. (laughs) They rebelled again and built an idol and worshipped it because they didn't think God was taking care of them. That's where I come up with the conclusions that their core value didn't have an absolute faith in the trust of God. They, They clutched at other stuff, trying to hang on. So what did God do then? He took them to Israel. They got there. Told Moses, send ten spies in. Find out what you got to do to take over the country. So Moses sent ten spies, which included Caleb and Joshua, two very prominent figures from this point on in the story. When they got back, What happened was the 80-20 rule. It's an old adage of leadership and change. (laughs) Normally, when something new pops up, there'll be an 80-20 split of the people involved looking at it. 80% will either want it or not want it. 20% will want it or not want it. And how well these two groups can influence each other determines what happens. Well, in this case, the 80-20 was eight of the ten spies said, Oh, yeah, there's a lot. It's a land of milk and honey, but the people there are giants and they're fierce and they'll kill us all and we can't go. We can't do this. Caleb and Joshua, just the opposite. Land of milk and honey. God's with us. We can whip them. Let's go do it. Well, what did the people do? Well, they fell into the 80-20 split. 80 negative, 20 positive. The 80% said, oh, we can't do this. You know, we all get killed. What are we going to do? We should be back in Egypt where the masters took care of us. So what God told Moses was, okay, 
Take this group of people out in the desert for the next 40 years, wander around till they all die. <laughs> and during that 40 years, we will bring up another generation of Israelites who have absolute trust in God and will obey God's commands. So that's what they did. They went out in the desert. By the time they got back to the promised land, 40 years later, most of that first generation was gone and dead. Caleb, Joshua, still strong, still there leading. Joshua was just ready, just getting ready to take over control from Moses. Caleb was one of the, one of the most energetic, enthusiastic, old leaders they had. He was well into his 80s. Uh, So what they did was attacked several kingdoms on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, which would be like, let's take on the junior varsity first. (laughs) And they whipped them bad. So then it was time to go into Israel. Moses was called home to God. You're not going to the promised land, Moses. Joshua's going to take the people over. So Moses led this 80-20 split of positive 80-20 across the River Jordan, attacked the town of Jericho, and defeated it. And went on from there, and they took the promised land and divided it among themselves. There's an awful lot of side stories when you get into this story to look at, but I won't go into them. But if you are interested, like I said, there's only five books of the Bible you got to read to get the whole story. And it's interesting. So, kind of a conclusion... I can't stand up here and tell you that things are going to be normal in six months or ever. But I can tell you with assurance that there is going to be a new normal. And I can't tell you what it is, though. But we will adapt to it, particularly if we have strong trust in God. The reason I can tell you this is because life is nothing but change. Growing older every day is changing every single day. Every day that comes along, new things enter our life, and we have to deal with them. I did like, four things became real clear to me as God took me through this journey over three, four month period. Uh, the bottom, the bottom line is that I became much more comfortable with what was going on. Uh, reminded me, in fact, I hit somewhere in March or April, I hit on a, there was an old song in the 1950s by Rosemary Clooney. I think it was the, the artist anyway. It was called Que Sera, Sera. <laughs> Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. And that made me very, very comfortable that I, I'm going to survive these changes, whatever's going on. But he taught me four things that I needed to keep top of my list. Don't be a victim. Don't adopt a victim mentality. Always have control of your life. Do those things you can do. Those things you can't do, don't worry about them. Number two, be as active as you can. He prompted me to set up an exercise program back in the middle of winter, outside, rain or shine. I was out there many days in a raincoat, Snowmobile suit, whatever it took, whether it was snowing, raining, sleeting, freezing. Uh, a doctor helped me. He put me on a pretty strict diet. Then I've taken a few pounds off. He's gotten rid of two of my blood pressure meds. I created two 
full-page lists of projects at home, and I've got that down to about a half a page, one right after another. I do what I can do, and I do it every single day. I try to do something on that list every day. That's structure in your life, and structure gives you some semblance of order, and that's what we look for when change hits us. I wish I had some order in this change. Well, you can order certain parts of your life, and you should do that. The other thing that he taught me was use my values to drive my behaviors. To do that, I've got to stay in touch with my values. I have to examine them and be looking at them almost on a daily basis. You know, if I claim that the most important value to me is an absolute trust in God, then I've got to be doing things that reinforces that trust on a daily and weekly basis. That's why I'm here every Sunday morning that I'm not either sick in bed or in the UP. I try to pray, spend a lot of time talking to God. And prayer for me is probably different than a lot of people. I talk to him with my eyes open while I'm wandering around. And he answers me quite frequently. Not a little voice, but occasionally I've heard a little voice. But most of the time it's just a comfort level or feeling that I'm, what I'm doing is right. This is what he wants me to do. Or it'll be a sense of what I'm doing ain't what God wants, I don't think, because I don't feel right about this. So I back up. The last thing he taught me was accept the changes that I must because can't do anything about them and do something about those that I can. Make decisions. Drive my own life. Be in control. That's what the experts taught me. That that's how you manage change in your life. That's how you manage the grieving cycle. I want to leave you with one thing. And it's my most favorite scripture verse in the Bible. It comes from Joshua 24, verse 15, the last sentence in the verse. But for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. That's on my grandfather clock at home in big letters. (laughs) And I see that every single day because I'm looking at that clock on and off constantly. It's just a reminder that work on my values, stay close to my values, strengthen my values, because that's what's going to drive my behavior, and my behavior is what's going to meet the changes that come at us on a daily basis. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, we praise you for this gathering of people here in your name. Lord, we ask that you be with each and every one of them as they leave here today. Uh, touch their hearts and let them know that you are a trustworthy God, that you you will do what is right for them. Lord, it may be challenging at times, but it will be what's right and what's just and what's most needed. Lord, we thank you for all the benefits you throw at us. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you.